In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com smart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today is author Sam Wasson. Whether he's writing about directors such as Blake Edwards, Paul Mazursky, or the history of improv, a consistent theme running through Wasson's books is the perseverance and talent required to make art in Hollywood. His latest book, The Big Goodbye, is about the seminal film Chinatown. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. This is the love theme from Chinatown by the film's composer, Jerry Goldsmith. In The Big Goodbye, Wasson chronicles the friendships of the four men at the heart of the 1974 classic. Producer Robert Evans, screenwriter Robert Town, director Roman Polanski, and the movie star, Jack Nicholson. And what was at stake for each one in making this definitive film? Sam Wasson grew up in Los Angeles and fell in love with the movies early on. I was a movie lover. It was actually Bullets Over Broadway. I went nuts. I thought, oh, film is not just dialogue and performance. It's visual component. It's a complete sensual experience. That Bullets was so beautiful and so funny, it knocked me out when I saw it. That was the end. It's the ultimate art form, combining all the other art forms. You finished film school. Yeah, USC. First, I went significantly, I went to Wesleyan for film school in Connecticut and studied with Janine Basinger, who's the Hollywood historian on the planet, knows more about Hollywood than anyone ever has, I think, ever, ever will have. And it's just obvious when you talk to her. And she really teaches auteur theory of Hollywood. So I got a deep four-year-long survey of the greatest. And there was no deconstruction. There's no, you know, film theory. It's film as film. And that was my film education. And then I went to USC, which was kind of a bust. For what? For film. Production. Right. I directed one film uh, myself, and I, I just, I wouldn't say hate it, but I didn't care for it at all. You know, being responsible for cajoling the work out of, especially actors. It's a lot of managing, isn't it? I mean, it's, 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 it's a much managing as art, whereas if you're acting or if you're starring or if you're writing, there's very little 
bullshit that you have to deal with. It's purer, I think. Well, when I was acting and Mint and I directed a film, I remember that when you're when you make films and you're starring in films, you know, years ago for me, you could be in your trailer and they would knock on the door and say, well, the producer would like to talk to you. Or the head of the studio was here visiting. He'd like to talk to you. And I'd say, tell him I'm asleep. And, <laughs> just, and you could hide in the trailer. As opposed to when you're directing, you can't do that. You can't you hide. You can't the hide. No. You have to. They, they come to work and they're like, let's, cut, let's talk about how you're over, over schedule here. That's an amazing thing about directing is that you're you're really in reality. You're interfacing with reality all the time. And in other art forms, you don't, you can be in your imagination. But when you're making a movie, there's so much shit that you have to do. You're making a building from scratch. So you finished, you did four years at Wesleyan? Yeah. And then you wanted more film school? And then I, and everyone was said, oh, you want to make movies. You got to go to film school. You got to go to USC. And so I thought, oh, yeah, USC, of course. That's where, you know, you go to Juilliard if you want to do Lincoln Center. You go to USC if you want to do, you know, Man's Chinese. So Wesleyan was more film theory and USC was about film production. Yeah, it was film study. I mean, it was film. It was watching movies and talking right. about filmmaking. Right. But at what point do you stop and say to yourself, I don't think I'm going to make movies? Well, I'm not totally convinced that I'm not going to, but at that moment, it was a combination of two things. I looked around and I saw that my fellow classmates were completely invested in the Hobbit thing. And I felt instantly lonely and realized that I was experiencing a microcosm of what it was going to look like out in the real working world. And I thought, you know, maybe the Hollywood that I grew up in is no longer the Hollywood that is, or the Hollywood that I grew up outside of. Mm -hmm. And I was right. And then the book thing just happened. How? It was actually Janine Basinger at Wesleyan who said, why don't you write a book? I never thought of it. And I picked Blake because I wanted to pick who I thought was the greatest writer-director of comedy alive who had not been celebrated. Now, Blake, my ex-wife, Kim Basinger, uh, did uh, Man Who Loved Women with Blake. And that's when I first met Julie. And, you know, you're so right. I mean, he's so underappreciated. I think Victor Victoria yep. is one of the 10 funniest movies I've ever seen in my life, ever. I love Victor Victoria. I love 10. I love a movie he made that a lot of people probably don't know about called What Did You Do in the War, Daddy? Uh -huh. With Dick Sean. Dick Sean. Dick Sean. <laughs> and Dick Sean, I'll just say this. Dick Sean is a drag scene in the movie. I mean, if I don't know what else you need. But, <laughs> but, but Blake, Blake, I, I always thought that Blake was, uh, people uh, look at slapstick somehow with the exception of Chaplin, who is revered as poetic because he is. Everyone else looks at slapstick as this low form. You know, slapstick is dumb. It's for children. Right. It's childish. And yes. so I think Blake got a bum rap. Uh, because of that. And I wanted to elevate him and say, this is sophisticated. Someone can fall off a fucking chair and still be Noel Coward. And that's what Victor Victoria is. Okay, so then you do After Blake, uh, your next book. Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m. Yeah, so Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m. is your next book. Then Mazursky, I think, is after yeah. that. Why Mazursky? What did he do to you that made you want to write a whole book? Because to, to write a book, as you know, you're spending a lot of time of your life with that person. Yeah. Uh, Mazursky was just just love for the work, enthusiasm for the man who I'd met a couple of times. And actually, it ties to Blake. As much as I loved the work, Blake left me with such a scar in my heart. Why? Why? He personally was 
so sadistic. To you? Yeah. Sadistic to me. And he was that way to you as his as his uh, Boswell here? It was astonishing. I was young. I don't know. You could probably tell me how old I was. I don't remember. I was young. And he would cancel on me and I'd be in the car on the way over and he would cancel on me with not giving any reason. And then he would call me up and he would say, you know, get in the car, come on over. And I would get in the car and he would cancel on me. It was a real dance of death. And I finally got in there a couple of times, but, um, it was open hostility. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> it was like nothing. Yeah. It was a real abusive codependent relationship. So Mazursky is platformed off of Blake. How? Why? Because I, we're getting into the therapy portion of the conversation, <laughs> but of course I blame myself for the way I was, you know, and I guess I wanted to make sure I knew how to do this and that it wasn't going wrong because of me. And so I wanted to be with someone that I was comfortable with and obviously idolized. And those two things dovetailed perfectly in Paul. And Mazursky was nothing like Blake, I take it. Oh, no. Mazursky's. You know, it turns out people are like their movies. Blake Edwards' movies are sadistic, and we love them for it. And Paul's movies are loving and warm, and we love him for it. But because comedy is finally about rage to find a nurturing director of comedy and Nichols wouldn't be would qualify in this case is a rare thing and so i'm interested in funny people and funny people and good people don't always go together so to find in mazursky funny and mensch to the core was a beautiful thing and is what what his movies are about well, it's interesting you mentioned Nichols because Nichols is a very good example. A lot of these big directors I worked with and had very small parts, you know, Stone, Marty, Woody, Nichols. I mean, I didn't have leading roles in these films. And when I worked and I did the movie Working Girl, one of the first films I did, and I worked with Mike, you could tell that Mike was someone who had come through a gauntlet. He'd worked his way. And I don't, I don't mean this as a criticism. He had come through a gauntlet where in the way that you move through the film business and you have, and Polanski reminds me of this as well in your mm. book, Mike was someone who had in the way that you, you'll take the good ideas wherever they come from. You'll take the good advice wherever it comes from. And you're going through the jungle, if you will, and eventually you realize that the person you can rely on, the person has that typically, not always maybe, but who typically has the best ideas is yourself. And you grow to rely on yourself and you don't want anybody to talk you out of what you're keen on. That's improvising. That's because Mike is an improviser. I mean, right. does that fit? Like your, that's, well, that's your other book. That's your other, now, why did you write that book? Why did you write about improv? Well, two reasons. One, I do believe it is the great American art form. I right. do believe that. And the other reason, uh, I wanted to meet Elaine. I wanted to know Elaine. I wanted to celebrate Elaine because she created this. She's a national treasure. You're referring to Elaine May. Yes. She is, as you know, you know, tough to get a hold of. I wanted to do it. I didn't do it. And my heart is still not whole. There's still a dark Elaine part in the heart. It belongs to her. I just worship Elaine. I mean, a new leaf. Yep. Oh, I love Elaine. I love Elaine. And talk about physical comedy. I mean, that moment where she's taking off the, or she's putting on the dress, or the, the nightgown, I can't remember what it is, and she gets stuck in it. I mean, a woman who could do that and be as spontaneously brilliant as she, 
It is a per <sighs> is I know. Author Sam Wasson. If you're as fascinated with old Hollywood as I am, check out my conversation with the legendary Debbie Reynolds and her reflections on the Hollywood studio system. Most of us, Shirley MacLaine and Elizabeth Taylor, were at MGM, and everything was done for us. You know, the makeup, the hair, they sent cars for us. We were very spoiled. We didn't kind of know what to do when they dropped everybody, like when television came in. Sure. And in the 40s. Can you remember what year around that was, the end, the end of the 40s? 48, 49. The studio system kind of died as you get into the 50s? It is slowly died a death, you know. It was, like, interesting to watch. It was, I didn't realize it was the end, you know. I didn't know that it was that. Hear more of my conversation with Debbie Reynolds at heresthething.org. After the break, Wasson describes what motivated each of the four men behind Chinatown's success. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash Bits. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In the movie Chinatown, Jack Nicholson plays Private Eye Jake Giddis, who becomes ensnared in a web of corruption, at the center of which is developer Noah Cross, played by John Huston. It was Noah Cross Sam Wasson was thinking of when he watched the 2016 election results come in. The moment Trump won, I turned to my friend Graham and I said, "Where? what's the story now? Where? What movie are we living in? And that was it. Combined with the fact that, of course, I wanna, I'm angry about what's happened to Hollywood, and so I'm always looking for ways to scream and to tell this story about the um, nightmare that has become of America, which was the story we were just beginning to live at that point four years ago. Mm-hmm. 
combined with its position in the decline of that second great wave of the new Hollywood and the, the four personalities who are fascinating, you know, in and of themselves. But that's what I want to, I want to, I want to break that down those four, because for me, when I read what you said about Trump and Noah Cross, I thought, well, Noah Cross to me was more, even though he's a fictional character, he was more Robert Moses than Donald Trump. You know, I mean, he actually accomplished things. He was diabolical and he was very, very uh, uh, Machiavellian, but he yep. accomplished things as opposed to Trump who's accomplished only, you know, genocide. That's right. Yeah. When I read the book and I put everything through the prism of the book and, the, uh, and understanding the film through your lens, what I, what I came away with, and you correct me here, or help me, is there's four men that come together. Robert Evans is the head of Paramount. Nicholson is the film star, uh, uh, really ascending at this point in his career. Polanski does Rosemary's Baby, then his wife is killed right after that. He makes a movie right on the heels of his wife being murdered. And then Robert Town, the screenwriter, and all four of them come together. And I, I guess it's safe to say this is a bit of a, an obvious thing. Four guys come together, all of whom have an equivalent level of desperation for this movie mm -hmm. to work. They all mm -hmm. are obsessed with making this work. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. Right. Describe for me the relationship between, you spend a good amount of time in the book, and the relationship between Town and Polanski. So the film of Chinatown, the shooting script, the scenes that were shot, and I'm assuming that eventually a script is compiled and is, and, and it, it is, is bound, if you will, that is the shooting script. Is that more Polanski than Town? Well, Town obviously generated it. And then Polanski, for years, he was generating it. And Town is a very slow writer and a very expansive writer. I, I mean, he writes big and then struggles to cut down to structure. So when Polanski comes in, in the last two or so weeks or a month or whatever it was, Polanski really structures it. So I guess the answer is yes. So the structure is Roman, no question about it, but the material is town. Now, Town, who had his writing partner, Edward Taylor. Yeah. And uh, Taylor was someone, describe that relationship. Taylor was someone who did a lot of work, uh, uncredited. I think nearly all of it uncredited. Was he ever credited? Did you mention that in the book? Did he get a credit anywhere? It, not on a Town movie. He got a credit, a writing credit on a movie called W.I. Warshawski, Kathleen Turner picture. Yes, 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 um, yes. Edward Taylor got credited for that, um, but he never got a writing credit on a Robert Town movie, um, never wanted one. Why do you think that is when you have a guy, here's four men who are fairly, um, if not obsessed with success, they're obsessed with greatness, their legacy. I mean, you, yep. you could you could fine tune all four men. What did they, they had something in common, but it was a little bit distinctive what Nicholson wanted, Evan, so forth. But for Taylor to be in the rooms with these people and writing these seminal films, why do you think he didn't want any credit? What was it about? Well, there's stated reasons and then there's unstated reasons. And the stated reasons were, and this is Taylor, either from his own writing or from or what he told to other people, were one, he didn't want to deal with the bullshit of show business. He just wanted to punch in, punch out, write the scenes, do the creative work, and not have to deal with the haggling of the negotiations and, and egos and despair and all that stuff that comes with having your name on something. There's a certain amount of freedom that you get to say, no one's going to know that I was here. So there was that. Then there was the long-term friendship that he had with Town, going all the way back to their 
years at Pomona when they were in college. Mm. So he felt a kind of loyalty to town, which manifested as subordinating himself to town's, you know, quite obvious need to be a star. And then there were all these speculative secret reasons about secrets that they might have had on each other. Uh, then there was, of course, Edward's alcoholism and town really being a support to Taylor, you know, because Taylor got paid for this. And Taylor in his heart really did believe, you know, these are town's movies, which they were insofar mm-hmm. as town generated them. And I'm just helping Robert with his movie. He convinced himself of that. Yeah. That it really was more town. And also there are people like that who what they convince and they have a certain kind of personality. I've known a couple myself where their attitude is better the crumbs off your table than nothing at all. That's it. That's it. So there's pat deep pathological stuff that we can't even get into, but that's the type that you're describing. But the one thing that you see in this movie is the death of that studio executive like Evans. You mentioned a piece of very well-known history, the advent of Jaws and what Jaws does to marketing and films and how the business all changes uh, in the wake of that. But you tell it so well. I mean, you tell it really Thank wonderfully. You. You, you make everybody really see the impact this had. Once these guys knew there was big money in them, their hills, yep. everything changes. What was it about Evans that he wanted to have great films that made money and won awards? He loved it. He loved it. He loved show business. He loved movies. He loved people. He loved talent. It's actually that simple. I asked him this question. I said, Evans, is it as simple as you bet on talent? Do you have an easy job? And he said, you're goddamn right. <laughs> that was, and, and, and it's true. I mean, if you have the courage, that's the question. Do you have the courage to say, yes, I believe you are talented, here's the check, then you're a great studio executive. Because even if the movie fails, even if it is a steaming piece of shit humiliation to everyone on the planet, at least you go to bed thinking, I picked a good guy. I picked the right people to do that. Right, right. That's a pride that what executive can now go to sleep saying that? You know, the Evanses, and you mentioned Zanuck and people like that who were running the studios back then, some of them weren't people who knew how to make movies, but they knew people who knew how to make movies, and they knew how to bring them together and and, and seduce them into coming in to join them on this venture. Yes. I mean, Goldman's maxim turns out to be right. I believe nobody does know anything. Right. I believe nobody knows anything. Those people who end up being the most successful are the people who who are the strongest to adhere to their great taste. Mm -hmm. And those guys, Zanuck, all those great guys, had exactly that. Now, Evans, of course, you you, you do a wonderful job in the book. This is a prism through which you learn a lot about the movie business and the history of the movie business. It's a great, great, great book. And you also learn what a seminal year this is in 1974. So many great movies made. And Evans is someone who, you know, is that white hot period in the 70s. The studios are making Paint Your Wagon and Finian's mm-hmm. Rainbow mm-hmm. and all that stuff is tanking. And then along comes, and, and Robert Osborne said this to me when we co-hosted TCM together. He said, you know, I just hate Easy Rider because Easy Rider is the movie that comes along and just changes everything. <laughs> yeah. The movies yeah. become so real and so ugly and so uh-huh. and, and, and so nasty. And so and they're, like, they're like documentaries. Nicholson becomes a star, if you will, on the back of that movie in 69. Then we get into the 70s, and what happens? 
Well, you know, just like Hollywood being Hollywood, Easy Rider is a hit. So then they all fall over themselves trying to get the next one. Now, unlike today, where they fall over themselves trying to get the next one, back then, making a movie was relatively inexpensive enough mm-hmm. that they could understand the next one being, well, let's try another little movie based on a, you know, based on a couple of guys. You know, the modesty of the Easy Rider project could be replicated. And that is a recipe for creativity. And so that's what they did after that. Absolutely cynical undertaking insofar as Hollywood is doing what it's always done. But because the economics of the system are conducive to creativity and the people calling the shots are genuinely interested in art, it can flower. Polanski's wife, he makes the movie Rosemary's Baby, which I can't say enough about that movie. And the more I watch that movie, that's one of the ones I've downloaded on my computer because of that remarkable balance he has. You have Ruth Gordon in this, like right up to the, her toes are right on the line of camp in that movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And yet there's Sidney Blackmer playing her husband, who's as velvety. And the cast is Alicia Cook. You have the creepy and the sour and the sweet and the weird and the pleasant and everything in in harmony. And the same is true for this movie. The same is true. Polanski is a master of casting. Master. I'm so glad you brought – definitely down to, I mean, who is – Burt Young in Chinatown. Talk about juicy. I mean, there's so it's an embarrassment of riches that we never get. The movie is so fertile in talent that we never get down to the Burt Young of it all. <laughs> we obscure Burt Young. Yeah, we do obscure Burt Young. Diane Ladd. How about that? Dead on the floor. Oh, and just a perfect, perfect portrait of a nervous actress all the way through performing down to the very end when he pulls out the SAG card. And that is an L, that is also inside, that's a little gift to an Angelino to see that, oh yes, she was an actress. Of course she was. And you play it back in your mind and, and the whole psychology of the actress just kind of harmonizes with what you've seen. Fucking Polanski casting that movie. I mean, how do you, you can't, t- how do you teach the ability to cast? That has to be one of the things like, like you, you have it or you, you have don't. To have. It's a gift right? you have to have. You have to sense that that person can do, even if you have to push them, even if they have to dig down. You know, you know. Gary Oldman became a star doing Sid and Nancy. Oh. Gary Oldman became a star doing Sid and Nancy and won an Oscar playing Churchill. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about that journey as an actor in terms of the disposition of the character. Now, Polanski, his wife is killed. He, he does Rosemary's Baby. It's, it's released in 68. His wife is killed in 69. He comes and does this movie, I guess, in 73. It's released in 74, correct? Yeah. And what Polanski is showing up now to shoot Chinatown, which Polanski shows up now, he's changed how from the horrors of what happened to his wife. He's been devastated. He's been devastated. And he's he left town. And it should be said, not just because his wife and child and friends were murdered by them, not just because of the emotional residue of the grief, but because the town turned on him in a way. The town, in the panic around figuring out who the killer was, we didn't know who the killer was, Mm -hmm. 
there was speculation that, well, maybe it's Polanski. Right, His right. movies are don't evil enough. I learned that from you. I learned that from your book. And it's a tribute to his friends, Dick Silbert, Jack, Warren Beatty, Evans, the people who were really his friends who stuck by him and supported him in that. I mean, the grief, to compound on top of the grief, the paranoia of the town closing in on you, I can't even make a word to come out of that. Well, will they, will they put him back together again, so to speak, his friends? They put him back together he's, he's, again. He's got, a, yeah. he's got a good bunch of friends. And that's kind of also what this book is about secretly for me, is a good bunch of friends, because that's what I dream of. That's what a good Hollywood should feel like. One thing that was just really assaulted me from the book was that idea that back then, and it never crossed my mind, it never occurred to me that Polanski was someone who people, he was a suspect in some people's minds. He was a suspect. And now the whole now the whole town, the whole community lived in terror in the wake of the- Lived in terror. And I should add, to compound, to make this even fucking worse, he didn't know who the killer was. So he's suspecting his friends. Mm. Maybe it yes. is Warren. Yes. Maybe it is Warren. He's, he's, you know? doing, he's, he's trying to get sample, D, what was he trying to get? Like yes. blood samples off of steering yes. wheels and the carpeting yes. of cars and all this shit. Yes. That's an amazing part of the book. I mean, it's enough for an opera r- right there. I mean, people say it's a Greek tragedy. I mean, Roman Polanski, that's to, to say nothing of what we all know is coming, but just that incident right there, unimaginable. Author Sam Wasson. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend. And be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Wasson talks about the reception of the film's shocking ending and its remarkable score. Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $8.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Simply by Frito-Lay. These days, you have a lot going on. But now, thanks to Simply by Frito-Lay, you have one less thing to worry about. So kick back and enjoy your favorite Frito-Lay snacks with ingredients to feel good about, like Simply Blue Corn Tostitos, Sea Salted Ruffles, and even White Cheddar Cheetos Puffs. All made with no artificial colors or flavors. Enjoy what you love and look for Simply Brand snacks online or at a store near you. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Because Chinatown was Jack Nicholson's first real turn as a leading man, he paid attention to every last detail, down to his wardrobe, to inhabit Jake Giddies. 
I mean, it was deep in him too, because Town wrote it for him. Town observed Nicholson. They were in um, Jeff Corey's acting class, right? And 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 improvised. I- improvisation was heavy in that class, and so and Jack is a great improviser. So Town really became a master of Jack, whatever that means, and so learned learned how to just hit it right to him. Sometimes I think the guy that can nail Chinatown and especially that ending and that and that last line. The guy that can nail that ending, you write with great detail and great insight into the shooting of that final scene and the car driving off in that long shot and the actor that pulls the gun and shoots her, you know, the, the whole kind of existential ennui of the whole thing at the end. Uh, forget about it, Jake, it's Chinatown. I thought to myself, that's Polanski in the wake of his wife being butchered that way. Yes. Like his mother is killed. His father says to him, you have, you have it in there. Move it. Move it. The prompt from the father, but you just keep moving. Just keep moving. And Polanski was certainly primed to nail that because of all the horrors he'd been through. And it's hard to imagine a more horrific ending to a major Hollywood movie. It's hard to imagine. And when the film was screened for the executives, what was their, you, you write about this, what was their response to the film? You know, you, you tried your best, Evans, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sue, Sue Mangers was like, what are you, what were you, <laughs> honey, what were you thinking? I can't do Sue. You can do it. You know, right. uh, they're filing out in the director's guild. Um, was it Freddie Fields who had a sort of shit-eating grin on his, Freddie, Freddie and Evans were never simpatico. Right, right, right. But then it got good reviews. Yeah. Yeah, then it did well. It did well yeah. and, and won a lot of awards. Yeah. Jack didn't win. Jack didn't win. Jack didn't win. Hey, Jack didn't Who win. Who won that? Oh, 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 Art Carney. Art from From Mazursky. From Mazursky. Even Mazursky knew Mazursky when I talked to him. snatches Jack's yeah. Oscar and hands it. Not so fast, Jack. Yeah. And hands it to Art Carney. Yeah. Yeah. I think even Paul was a little embarrassed of that. Was it going in style? No, it was Harry, Harry and Tonto. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's see. Chinatown, Harry uh-huh. and Tonto. Hmm, let's see. Wow, okay. No, I love that. That sounds like an SCTV sketch. Oh From the God. makers of Chinatown. From the makers of Chinatown. <laughs> comes a story of a man and his cat. You know, one of the things that uh, I love the part of the story because I'm obsessed with musical score. Describe how there was the path with the score for Chinatown. One composer who then, what happens? His name was Philip Lambro, and um, he wrote, I don't have the language to even describe what music, I mean, you can actually find the score on YouTube, and it was an atonal, edgy, expressionistic, weird, you know, not melodic, not what you think of as Hollywood, certainly not what you think of as 40s glamour Hollywood, and it didn't work, and this was like in the final moments before, right. you know, scoring comes in at the very happened? end. And what happened was uh, Evans called Goldsmith and said, you got to save my life. <laughs> and <laughs> and Goldsmith said, all right. And 10 days later, and, and 10 days sounds like a legend, you know, sounds like fable fiction stuff. I got 10 days confirmed all over the place. It really was 10 days. I mean, if it wasn't 10, it was 11 days. You know, he turned around a masterpiece in no time. This is another reason why Evans is Evans. Only people like Evans can pick up the phone and get somebody like 
Goldsmith to write a score for one of the greatest movies in the world in 10 yeah. to 11 days or whatever the fuck it is. And it also tells you that Evans was beloved on a personal level. Yes. You know? He could make those calls. You make those calls and someone says yes and, t- and turns it around and Evans supervised the score. You know, music was so important to <sighs> Evans. So important to Evans, even though he fucked up on on Godfather by not, you know, Nino Rota pushing back on. It's okay. But Evans loves music because he's finally in his heart, just a romantic and a softy. And also music is a major part of post-production. And that's where Evans can come in and and get his hands in there. Sometimes he gets his hands a little too much in there as, <laughs> as, as Coppola knows and suffered by. But that's the the shadow side of Evans. But music allows him to do, allowed him to do that. Obviously, many people know this already, that your book has been optioned and they're going to make a movie out of it. And uh, yeah. my dear friend, Lorne Michaels, is uh, going to produce. And then in addition to uh, uh, Lorne as producer, Ben Affleck has been collared, if you will, to do the directing. What is something you are hopeful about? I'm hopeful that they'll do right by Roman. In what regard? Well, you know, the times that we're living in, you know, uh, uh, may, sh- surely I'm, I'm surprised they, ev- they, they even did it, you know, that they, that they thought that this would be the right climate to make a, a movie that stars the character Roman Polanski and is a, I should dare say, because I wrote it, a sympathetic portrait in the, in the book. Mm-hmm. Balanced, I hope, but sympathetic. And we live in such extreme... I don't know. We live in such an extreme yes or no. Yeah. Cancel culture. Cancel culture, this or that. There is no gray area. And Roman is the definition of gray. And Mm. every great character is. Every great character is. So I want to see not not just them to do right by Roman because I know him and, and respect him, but also I want the movie to be as good as it could be. And my theory is that to write a character who lives in the gray... I wish that for every character in the movie, that they're in the gray. And I wish that for every character in every movie. Author Sam Wasson on his book, The Big Goodbye, Chinatown and the Last Years of Hollywood. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial, Thanks for listening. about mcdonald's all day can't get it off my mind i can already taste it Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some mickey d's deal there's a deal for every moment at mcdonald's right now get two of your favorites for just 350 mix and match a classic mcchicken a hot and spicy mcchicken or a juicy mcdouble price and participation may vary cannot be combined with combo meal single item at regular price
Hey, it's Chuck Bryant for Movie Crush, and I want to let you know about a very special episode where I speak with TV legend Alan Ball on the 20th anniversary of his landmark HBO show, Six Feet Under. We cover everything from the show's inception to its legendary final season and finale. So many people have said that it, it was such a strong ending that that's uh, definitely very gratifying. A lot of other great shows have not been quite so lucky. So head over to Movie Crush wherever you find your favorite shows and check out our Six Feet Under 20th anniversary special with Alan Ball.